0: History, Lecture 85, Rabbi Blywais. We're rounding out the period of the Rishonium, if you can believe that already. The, uh, and the Gemara's on top. Gemara takes primus. Although, it's Pirkei Avos. I don't know. Well, it, it's question. Uh, I don't know if it would make as much of a difference which goes on top. It, one of the later prominent Rishonim. I mentioned this the other day, that the great names start to taper off a bit as we get to the later period of the they call the 14th and 15th centuries already, but um, one of the later great uh, Rishonim is the Ram, Rabbeinu Nisim. Ilan? Uh, I was reading a book, the other day it was of my, I think Roman is that the Yeah, sure, we'll get to yeah, him soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's big. He's, he, he, um, he's the end of the 15th century, we're at the beginning of the 14th century. So the Ram's, I mean, to, to, the Ram's dates are 1320 to 1376, Rabbeinu Nisim of Gerona. Um, now, there's, that's the Ron that we refer to who writes his uh, famous super commentary on the Riff. So if you look at the Dapeha Rif in the back of your Gemara, um, you'll see there's a version of Rashi, and oh, it's one of these. Oh, no, no i should have it thing. Yeah, here we go. Here's the Dapbe and you have on the outside Rabbeinu, oh, oh. See that, yeah, in Makos, wherever, we'll see this, whenever the Ran doesn't have a perush on this, so his colleague and, and, and younger colleague is the Nimuka Yosef, I'll mention him in a moment, so he has his comment, comments where the Ran would ordinarily be. He never did it on Makos? The Ran didn't, didn't write on Makos, correct? He wrote on most of Shas, but not all of Shas, but this is the slot where the Ran would figure in most Kamaras. Rashi usually uh, on the inside page and on the outside is a more elaborate perush of either the Ran or the nimuke yosef which is very much in a similar style which sort of it's 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 the shot of rashi plus uh meaning it follows the line of rashi's reasoning but incorporates much more um a lot of practical halacha where rashi generally avoids paskining, the Ran certainly does this is probably maybe different, I should say, we're not sure, but maybe different than the Hidushi Aran, that probably was a different Rabbeinu Nisim, who wrote Hidushim on the, um, also on the, on the Talmud. He, the Hidushi Aran is the one that I've cited before who holds that a vodazara excuse me, Islam is uh, idolatrous, is, is, is part of vodazara because it seems that it contradicts, the Ran seems to contradict among other sources, the Ran. Which is one of the reasons we believe that they very reasonably are two different people. Yeah. Oh, the, the halakha that he brings uh, down, is that uh, what's his main source? Is it the round bombs? The riffs or round I mean I have been saying that a lot of these a lot of these posting derived from other ones. They certainly are all influenced from one another, but they're independent is and all they're independent No, no. I mean everybody was independent and they're all entitled to their own opinions. That's what makes the Rushoni. But certainly he's part of the tradition. He um he was, in his days, in, 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 the, in the mid-1300s, he was considered the gut the door. Uh, he wrote shuvos for many people. We've seen many people fill this slot. This is the same slot we saw last week. The Rashba filled this, the Rush filled this position, the Ran now fills it. Uh, in, the, in these days, um, he often one finds him critical of the Ramban, uh, the Ramban, who he finds overly focused on Kabbalah, was not the Rambam's uh, uh, preferred emphasis. Uh, he's also the first to write a complete commentary on, Nadar- on Maseches Nedarim, which Rashi doesn't do. So when you learn Nedarim, you learn Nedarim with the ran Anybody who's learned Nedarim before knows that that's the primary uh, Rishon. His students are Rav Chazday Kreskes, who we're going to learn about as we as we start learning about the Spanish Inquisition, the Rivash, uh, and Rav Yosef Chaviva, who I just mentioned is the Nimuka Yosef. And Rav Yosef Chaviva has some um, pretty impressive descendants. Among his descendants, the Nimuke Yosef's descendants, and again, I'm encouraging you if you want to figure this all within a, a you know, a, a family tree of Gedolim. So, among his descendants are Rav Yaakov and Rav Levi Yevan Chaviv, who are a father-son team who composed their classic work, the Ein Yaakov, the commentary on are among the Nimuke Yosef's descendants, and. Um, and Rav Yaakov Kuli, who wrote a great modern, more contemporary um, 18th century um, Musser book called the Yoets, We have it in our library here, a very popular, uh, co- popular Musser book and arguably the <laughs> prominent rabbinic name. If you think about Bulgaria, well, there you go. Think about the Yoets. I don't know how often you do think about Bulgaria, but if you do. Um, what's, what's the English title? you yeah. have? Yoets. It's based in a pasuk that we just read in Yeshaya, and it is literally the, the wondrous advice, advice, the wondrous advisor. A colleague of the Ran was also <coughs> Ravidal of Colossus, Spain, who you generally do not hear uh, in that name. You know him almost exclusively as Harav Hamagid, the great Magid Mishnah, who wrote the earliest complete major Peush on the Mishnah Torah? So we are starting now already at this point in history to get into the phase where people are writing super commentaries on the Mishnah Torah. The Magid Mishnah um, is one of the primary ones. Although we don't have some of the sections have been lost, we don't have on the entire Magid, on, on the entire Mishnah Torah. Um, he is one of the first to provide not only sources, remember that was the criticism of the Rambam, one of the major criticisms he didn't bring the sources, so the Magi mission is explaining the background he also explains the logical sequence underlying Rambam's thinking, which uh, yesterday there was some debate, if you heard of Steyer and of Lazarus Schleet about what the Rambam's first what superlative to apply to the Rambam exactly remember this discussion in the morning and um, who's right? It's not a right and wrong kind of a thing. See, so see the 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 way R. Steyer explained the Mishnah Torah was to say that help me, if I'm if, if I'm not saying this correctly, he said he said it was uh, really the first major complete reorganization and synthesis of all of halacha. And and Lazarus's point was that really you could say the same thing about the Mishnah by Rabbi De Levi. To which Rav Steyer responded that they're different, and it's we're just competing. Ravina Anasi, excuse me, sorry about that. Anasi, uh Anasi, to which Rav Steyer recently pointed out that that wasn't a, it wasn't all encompassing in the way that the Rambam has an all encompassing <laughs> book that explains even to a layperson uh, all the critical elements of halacha, both in the times without the of mikdash and the times with the of mikdash. Oh. So it's a good yeah. I mean, you could debate these these points anytime somebody asserts this kind of generic uh, superlative. Um, the Rif is a comprehensive work on Shas, but it doesn't explain and then pass in in terms and a re, in a totally reconfigured organization all of the Torah as it's meant to be applied in, in the Aron Torah and translated to practical halacha. Even though, so what? You're right. They're all great works, and it's not a competition, and so on. They're all part of our messiah. But, okay. Plus, if we don't follow uh, the ground bomb's uh, explanation on uh, how we have a Ruth and Yeah. Yeah, it would mean that he also didn't do it alone. Rambam wrote his whole thing by himself. Fair enough. Ooh, good point, Barak. Right. We we saw those machlokus, and the and the consensus views of of Gaon, who says that Rav Yehuda Nosi certainly did a major task, but it was not a, it was not on his own. Right. Where Rambam seems to have been quite independent. Okay people get confused, we think of the Spanish Inquisition and then we think of the Spanish expulsion. They actually are different phases. Uh, they're overlapping and one is, one is the institution, the other one was the event. Um, so I, I'm going to start talking about before there was really a full-scale Inquisition, there, was a, there were several events leading up to it that I'm going to start to describe. We remember the church has been in an ongoing state of, uh, of crisis since the decline of the Crusades and onward, as they realize they're not going to win the battles against the Muslim world, and um, uh, they see their opportunities with the Jews. We saw that as the background to the great debates uh, in, in, between uh, Pablo Christian and Ramban. Um, What they do realize, they hit upon this as effective strategy is if insofar as they campaign against the Jewish people, that actually strengthens the Christian world because it gives them a rallying purpose, a raison d'etre. I guess I'll use a French expression since a lot of the Inquisition started in France. Um, It gives them a new new sense of purpose and mission. Um, And so especially in Western Europe, there is an immense increasing pressure on Jews to convert to Catholicism. Catholicism, because even though these are the days after the Great Schism, so there is a whole eastern division of Christianity, they're not involved in this this particular uh, oppression that we're describing here. The church had at its disposal all kinds of tricks and tools to try to get the Jews. They used financial sanctions and blackmail. Uh, They used violent attacks. They used robbery and murder right there in the street in broad daylight of Jews. I mean, they were, in the literal sense of the world, word, terrorists, terrorizing Jews into saying, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll accept this religion. Um, and increasingly, one finds blood libels, uh, accusation that Jews uh, murdered especially Christian babies, but not just, uh, in order to make their matzahs and, and, and perform their other rituals. The Jews will be hounded if they remain Jewish. And then, once they convert, they're never left alone, they'd be pursued ruthlessly by the Inquisition. It was an entirely lose-lose proposition. So then you think, well then why succumb, why bother converting? A lot of the time they didn't realize it. And even if they did realize it, they felt that maybe they could escape. We're going to see a parallel when it gets, let's say, to the times of enlightenment in Russia. The, the um, Haskalah, the secular enlightenment, in, in um, Eastern Europe will also have this kind sense this promise that well all we have to do is throw off the shackles of observance and we can be accepted in the, and, and, and acculturated into the mainstream non-jewish world and then they'll love us and know what starts happening after the pogroms the Odessa, well before the Odessa really before the the, the, uh, the pogroms that um, that devastated Russia, in the, uh, in the late 1900s and one finds this situation it's impossible now by the late 14th century by the late 1300s already Spanish, the Spanish Jewish community begins to crack they, be, they, be, they begin to buckle under the, crash, the pressure and um, all told event, they estimate eventually over half of all of Sephardi Jews convert to Catholicism I was just talking to somebody who has um, uh, Spanish uh, roots but not identifiably Jewish Spanish roots and then it comes out that the families can trace their lineage a little bit and some people back there spoke Ladino. Which is something of a giveaway, indicating that maybe there was, maybe they were authentically Jewish after all, and they simply lost that thread. They didn't know it, but we know of many, many Spani- you know, Spaniards uh, today. It's estimated that in Spain, half of Spain may be Jewish. Uh, all kind. We'll talk about this. Who, who, which kind of people? I mean, South America, uh, of course, which is which is uh, heavily Spanish except the Portuguese sections mm-hmm. in Brazil and such, but a uh, lot of, and even in Portugal, lots of Jews. Wait, all other one come back, isn't it like, all, you're online with Spanish, did you're Jewish, and Spanish, language, Yeah. That? Yeah, yeah, that was a new decree yeah. that they made, that's right, yeah. that they, 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 they did it as a very belated, uh, kind of a, a peace offering to the Jews. A little too little, a little too late, I would say, given what we're about to <laughs> endure in history. Give you citizenship. Yeah, uh, this is, let's say, a familiar tale, the, the, the tragedy, the, the destruction of Spanish Jewry in the Middle Ages. I mean, it's familiar because of the uh, the cycle of anti-Semitism, but it also has its unique uh, story that didn't quite unfold in the same way. And Part of the uniqueness was just how privileged, just how accepted uh, the Jews found themselves in the Golden Age of Spain, and how all that will come undone, and, uh, and and ultimately turn against them. Um, we When we say that over half convert, that would be the greatest percentage of any Jewish community ever. So that's, that's not a statistic that anybody should be proud of, but that was the reality back in Spain in the 14th, 15th centuries. Um, part of the problem is they're not used to this. See, up in the north, the Ashkenazi Jewish communities, France and Germany especially, they were used to ongoing massacres and persecution, so they developed, let's say, we would say, like a thicker skin. They just knew how to get around, as it were. And um, the Spanish Jews were soft and, and, and spoiled, one can say. Uh, they were used to the good life, so when things turned bad for them, they didn't have the same resistance and the same ability to, 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 um, to stand up to it. And it reminds us in history, do you remember, you remember the figure at the end, one of the tragic figures at the end of Bayes Cheney? Mar tells a story of a certain wealthy woman named Martha. remember the story? Martha about Baitus who goes out and, and she dies of uh, when, when she steps in dumb. Because she's just not used to the reality and keep track of this quality of this trend in history. We're going to find a similar dynamic in the times of the Shoah. There was... Um, statistically they were able to study this, there was a high, high, much higher instance of suicide uh, among Western European Jews than among Eastern European Jews because the Eastern Europeans, similarly, they were used to this. They knew how to cope in the underground. The, the Western Jews were more assimilated or used to the high life in society so when everything turned black, they didn't have the coping mechanism to deal with it. Uh, we know that in in spain many of the converts were upper class wealthy influential jews they were the ones with the most to lose if they didn't convert and you can understand why they were targeted for their money there was always always a feather in the cap of the church if they can get somebody wealthy uh to continue to uh, give to their own to contribute to their own coffers um, there are times in history where it's not clear why bad things are happening to good people. We never know that riddle for sure. But in this case, the, we've already seen it. We, we hear very clearly in the post-scheme, Raspa and the Rush wrote, wrote, each of them wrote like this. The, the culprit here, what's the fault of Spanish Jewry? Philosophy. Philosophy was their undoing. And what they call philosophy, we would think of, let's say, as secular studies, but their philosophy was all the rage. That was what obsessed people. Back in the day, and so increasingly, we're going to we're going to find certainly among the Torah Jews um, the the trend towards shunning philosophy and seeing that as a as as a, an evil as something to be avoided at all costs. In 1380, the Spanish governments there's not a unified government. There's still there's still several different um, provinces, but there um, there are decrees that come out limiting rabbinic power. Uh, there's a prohibition against um, people converting to Judaism, they limit jobs <coughs> that, that uh, people can possess, so you're seeing again all the trademark signs in history and it's so easy for us with the historical hindsight that we have, learning it this way that we're learning, which is incredibly valuable, you know, we're supposed to take lessons from this, <coughs> at the time they don't see the, read the writing on the wall, they don't see the signposts. But we, you know, we, we want to scream to them, in, you know, looking back in retrospect, like, get out, do something, Don't see what's coming around the corner. Something that, also a pattern we're going to trace to the Shoah. And, you know, we're, we live in denial. We're, we're good, at, we're good at, at not facing reality. On June 6th, 19, 1391, a mob descends on Seville, one of the large cities in the Iberian Peninsula, killing over 4,000 Jews. Um, the rest of the Jews of the city of, of, of Seville submit to baptism. Those were the options. Die or convert. Um, they, they have the three shuls in Seville are, are, simulta- are, are immediately turned into uh, churches. Um, it doesn't stop in Seville. Surrounding towns suffer similar fates. The, uh, the same pattern is repeated in large cities, Cordova Toledo this uh, is, uh, in Toledo uh, this, is the or? this is the beginning of the Inquisition this is, but this is not the expulsion the expulsion is going to happen in 1492 this is 1391 101 years before then it already starts and in Toledo who was um, the Rav, Rav who remembers who was the, what was the name of the Rav who was once the famous Rav who was, who, uh, was brought in as the, as, the, as the official Rav of Toledo not that many years ago. Rav Asher, of formerly of Germany, the last of the Balitos was the Rush. The Rush moved to Toledo to become the Rav there. And in Toledo, um, his descendants are murdered. Including, we're not 100% sure, but possibly the wife of the Baliturim, um, the Balaturim's daughter and son-in-law. But it doesn't stop there. Aragon and Catalonia and Venetia and Mallorca and Barcelona... Tens of thousands die. We don't have exact numbers. Okay. Many more are maimed. Um, almost everybody are brought to sudden destitution, which is uh, horrific if it's a community that's used to the luxuries of life. who They often can't cope in poverty and die in their poverty, like Marta Baspaitos. Um, this 1391 is a turning point for Spanish Jewry. And in the same year, James II of Aragon formally decrees <laughs> that um, Jews have three options, the famous three options, convert, leave, or die. Oh, so they actually had leave. They, yeah, leaving was an option, not always a, an attractive one, as they left all of their uh, worldly property behind and often died in transit, or died when they got to the place where they, wherever they were going. Ultimately, the Jews bribe him, and yes. hold on, they bribe him, and they're able to push off the decree. I mean, this was a, a, meant as a total decree for all the well, Spanish jury. Not, hold on, hold on, on. they, they were, not done. were not done. Let me finish this sentence. It didn't happen yet. They bribe him to delay the implementation of the decree, and the bribery lasts a hundred years. So you're keeping track of the dates. You're starting to notice something. Uh oh, right now you see what's coming. But about a hundred years, they're able to push off what. Well, we see now as the inevitable, but at the time, and picture yourself in this, we're talking about the Spanish Inquisition, picture yourself in the, under the circumstances, the, you think it's never going to happen. Much like in Bayes Rishon, remember the Jews thought Hashem's not going to destroy his own house, Spanish Jewry won't kick us out, they need us too much, we're too part and parcel of the fabric of society, we're needed, our, our entrepreneurial uh, skills are needed, we're, we're, we're high, high levels um, our Jews are represented in the high levels of politics, of economics, of every situation in society, they, well, he won't ever really implement this. We'll just have to <laughs> newly bribed her. That'll be the game we have to play. Um, it seems certainly indefinite, 100 years who can think that far in the future. What are you going to say? When you left, they, like, if you had the choice, you know, leave, convert, or die. Again, it hasn't yet been implemented on a global level uh, yet. Uh, I'm referring to the reason why it's couldn't just take your liquid assets with you like actual cash money? Right. Often not or or you were very limited. We're gonna see when the hundred years is up and we see the actual implementation of the um, of the expulsion. Um, what happened was when it came time for Jews to liquidate their assets, the Spanish took advantage of them. Well of course they did. They were rapidly anti Semitic and they say, yeah, I'll pay you for your estate, just two dollars. Okay, the other guy crosses you, he'll give you $3 for you. What are, you, what, what are your options? What are you going to do with that? Many Jews just didn't sell. They said better better, better not, not get anything than the humiliation. But that wasn't much of an option either. Then people would just steal their property. <clears throat> During these hard years, uh, we meet a couple of interesting personalities. One is Rav Yitzchak who's the Rivash, uh, we mentioned him, he's one, of, he's one of the students of the Ran. Um, it was during this period that the Rivash and four others would be imprisoned on false charges. That's going to be increasingly common. Uh, rabbis, rabbinic figures were certainly targeted. Um, in this year, 1391, the Rivash flees the persecution and he goes down to Algiers. On the uh, North African coast in Algeria today, um, and that's if you, we haven't mentioned Algeria per se as being a, a home to Jews, but that too was a home to Jews and in fact if you out Al- if you visit Algiers today, you could, go, you could find the Rivash's tomb it's still there. Um, but his colleague and another student of the Iran is with Hazdei Kreskes, who has a grandfather of the same name. Um, the grandson, his dates are 1340 to 1410. He was uh, famous because he was just a gibor. He was a real hero. He did not. He was not afraid of the church, and he wrote fearlessly and spoke fearlessly against the church, against church teachings. He called church the uh, Christianity idolatrous, um, and he he wrote a book that is a massive attack, a major attack of the Jews and. Today we can read it and say, you go, right? We get we get all excited when we read this, but it took tremendous uh, bravery on his part. Messias Nefesh, one would say, the book is called *Trattato*, and um, it will very succinctly and very, very eloquently sum up the Jewish uh, view of Christianity, and it's not a very flattering portrait of Christianity. And of course, after its publication, it leads to a series of further attacks against the Jewish community. But you know, would you say he shouldn't write the book? Was What's the problem, you want to stand and stretch? Right. Uh, no, what would, what would be the problem of writing of writing such a book, so you're gonna be recriminations? He says, yeah, but the, the, the recriminations are gonna come anyway, the of Shah, but somebody's gotta set the record straight, because the Jews are misunderstanding Judaism, he's fighting for the future. Um, he'll be imprisoned on a false trumped up stu- charge in 1378, in the 1391 attacks that we just described, which was kind of like, I mean, that it was a year, that year was, an, it was a black year, but it was kind of like a Shoah. It was that generation's equivalent. Um, and it was during that year that his, his only son, of Chazai Kereskes, had only one son, would be killed, al Kiddush Hashem. Um, he wrote many books, but only two survived. One is Tritato that we still have, uh, studied. Sometimes most people don't know about it, but uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a book that some people uh, learn. Um, he has another book called Or Hashem, in which he writes against philosophy and Aristotle, and it's a systematic <laughs> refutation of Aristotelianism. He takes on the Rambam. Uh, he writes about the futility of philosophical inquiry. He said, it'll, "It's, it's, we keep calling it this way. I, I put it in this way. It's, it's a, it's a black hole." It'll nev- you'll never get out of it. You can, think, you can think clever thoughts, but it leads to nothing. He says, he says in contrast, I'm summing up a very complex, he's one of the more complex thinkers of our, of our heritage, but Rav Kreskes points out that the true purpose of life is not at all philosophical. It's simchus and nefesh. It's achieving a certain joy, a profound, sober kind of a joy, a soulful joy, through dvekas to a kadosh bar, from by clean to Hashem. And how do you go about acquiring that? Well, keep mitzvahs. You keep the mitzvahs, and he writes about this using philosophical terminology that was prevalent back in Spain, but he, he's able to, to, to transmit uh, the classic Torah point of view to that mentality. I told you there's some wild stories from this period, so here's, here's one of them, and it's too shocking to be believed in. I can only give you partly, I can only put it in some context. Some of it, it's hard to explain. Um, there are other prominent figures from this time. One is named Rav Shlomo Halevi who is a Talmud Kocham. He knew a lot of Torah. He was very charismatic. He was a student of the Rivash and Rav Kreskes, among others. So he's part of this whole chain, but please do not put him in your emerging family tree. He's otherwise known to history as the Archbishop Paulus de Burgos. Have, have you heard this? Have I ever like, given indication that this is coming? Because if you've never heard this before, you should be, you should be shocked. In 1390, he converts to Catholicism, and you're talking about one of the prominent rabbinic figures of the age. And he'll convert, and not only does he convert, and, which is a major feather in the cap of the church, a major achievement, he becomes probably, if not the most, one of the most prominent apostates, heretics of the period. And his conversion—can you imagine? If we we're back then, what do we do? You know, the Rashishi was just converted to Catholicism. What? How can that be? What, how can that not shake your faith? How does that, uh, how, how can you, how can that be? So he has a student whose name is, uh, a student who was himself, Tommy Chochem, by the name of Rabbi Yeshua, but Lorki, who wrote his rebbe, and their, their letters are famous, they're published. He wrote the letter, he said, demanding an explanation. You can't do that. How, how can you sell out like that? You know it's, and, and it was so obviously selling out. It wasn't, it clearly was not in conviction. So, um, Paulus de Burgus, the former Rav Shlomo Halevi, responds. Um, he says, "Yes, it was at a conviction, and it wasn't just the line that I thrown out to you before. I'm convinced that it's better to have this salary than that salary." No, he writes. He writes a whole song and dance, and one wonders if he's just flattering the church or if he really means it. He said, "My mentor in life recently, I read Thomas Aquinas." And I don't know if you're appreciating the ironies of history. Who did Thomas Aquinas call his rabbi? Rambam. Rambam. Uh, so you understand the virulence of the opposition to the Rambam, and where the Rambam clearly yeah, would be turning in his grave, but what the indirect uh, results of this philosophy, what it would lead to, maybe it was going to happen anyway. But in any case, Halevi says, and his name is now Paulus de Burgis, he writes, I did it out of conviction, Aquinas. Um, In Rabbi Yeshua's response, he reiterates, now listen, get this sentence. Wrap your mind around the following. His response is a reiteration of the major tenets, the major principles of Judaism in Torah, eloquently argued, in which he cites as his source, his own Rebbe. Rav Shlomo Halevi, who now he's seeking to refuse with his own arguments. Um, Halevi's not moved, and he makes an alliance with Pope Benedict, um, and he becomes the official now as Archbishop Paulus, Paulus de Burgos. He becomes the head of the new drive to convert more and more Jews. He enacts a decree. He says, you'll either convert um, or you'll lose all of your possessions. Part of the punishment because you resist acknowledging the savior of the universe, you you resist Yashka. Um, The archbishop goes after his former student, Rav Yoshua Lorki himself, and gets him. And the student now becomes the next apostate, and he converts. And I don't know if you have any pop culture in you, but um, if, the, if one of your associations is the invasion of the body snatchers, I think that would be an apt, does that mean anything to anybody here? Okay, old science fiction, but that's the scene, they're just dropping like flies, they're all around you, and they get you in the middle of the night, they brainwash you when you're sleeping. They're their, their pod people who take over your body at night kind of thing, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the idea. Now. Yeshua uh, Lorgi renames himself. He christens himself Geronimo, Geronimo, uh, and he becomes even more radical than his rebbe. He sees visions. Jesus himself comes to him. They go viral uh, several years later in 1411. Now, 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 the whole Jewish community is following the entire saga. They were there, they, they read the letters once upon a time. People wrote letters and everybody read them. So they read the original exchange between the Rebbe and the Talmud, and the Talmud trying to refute eloquently his Rebbe, and now the Talmud himself is the worst anti-Semite in, in, in town. And so um, you can understand when we said that half of, of Spanish Jewry uh, cracked, they, 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 they gave in. They converted how, how that could happen, how that was conceivable. How is it conceivable that Chochamim would behave this way? course after all this with the with the um, with with the uh, the, the, these former rabbis leading it a wave of oppression and violence uh, follows there's more mass conversion mass conversion is a great tool because in a frenzy when you do a public mass conversion people get caught up and can't resist it was a very effective tool if you're looking for numbers and it seems you know Many people have just lost their historical perspective. It seems like the only option is to convert. Now, there's some question whether it's the same Geronimo. Maybe it's Floriki, maybe it's not. A lot of people assume it is. I try to teach the messy, unknown version of history, so I leave it as a question mark. Um, He gets the um, permission of the pope and the authority granted by the pope um, to oversee what's called the Tortosa Debate, um, between the years 1413 and 1414, it's one of the other famous debates Christians against Jews of this period. As we've said, there, been, there are many of them. I'm skipping the story of most of them. Almost everyone is the same story. They're rigged, and guess who loses? No matter what we do, we lose. Um, and this one is one of the more infamous ones. Uh, he gets up and he presents a skewed version of Talmud to prove that Chazal affirmed Yashka. Um, The rabbis who are present include the great Rav Yosef Albo, who is a student of Rav Kreskus, Rav Chazdai Kreskes' student, um, and (coughs) we'll hear about him in a moment. Rav Yosef Albo leads a contingent of 180 rabbis uh, to defend the Jewish version. And um, they use a lot of the Ramban's arguments that were made in 1263, Uh, They downplay the centrality of Mashiach. They try as best they can to uh, explain the Jewish version of the events. They lose, and it's rigged. And the Pope claims victory. He confiscates Talmuds, everyone that he can find. He campaigns, he continues, he uses the Tortosa debate as an excuse to campaign for further conversions. And one of the things that they stage is they manage to get most of the 180 rabbis, certainly not Rav Yosef Alba who escapes, but almost all the 180 rabbis in attendance at this debate, the stage debate, um, convert publicly. And the Pope uses this as irrefutable proof of the, of the correct, correctness of Christianity. Rav Yosef Alba later writes his version, his position in his book, his classic book called The Sefer Harikarim. I mentioned this a little while ago. He has... Um, he debates the Rambam's 13 uh, main principles of Amura, the animamins. He has a slightly modified version. Um, the debate would later be criticized and be subject to uh, later scholarship. The Yabarbanel, who we're going to meet soon enough, the Yabarbanel actually was very critical of the rabbis in the debate. He said he understood that they were functioning under duress and not exactly free <coughs> to speak their minds, but uh, he was critical of their, of their performance. Um, well, if you've had too much oppression in Spain, let's just move north to France, 1394, um, France expels all of its Jews. Some take refuge in a place called the Comtat Venaissin, which is an independent state that officially belongs to the papacy, part of the Pope's property. Comte Venaissin, in France and um this group of jews who are given refuge by the pope never trust the pope uh because the pope had absolutely uh you know ulterior ulterior motives um he keeps these jews and maintains them for a very specific reason they become anybody knows what they're called famous historical phenomenon they get the name the pope's jews you ever hear of such a thing okay another another important historical footnote the locals called them the Pope's Jews. The Pope realized that the campaign against the Jews was so effective and so systematic, uh, before they'd be, they'd be chased out or, or converted out or wiped out, um, there's a concern maybe there'll be no Jews left if you remember, a central tenet of, Jew, of, of Christian theology was that there had to be Jews. They were the testi veritatis, as Augustine wrote many centuries earlier. They had to be alive when Yashka would come back and testify to their mistaken beliefs. And what if no Jews would actually be around when Yashka finally came back? So for this for this idea, the Pope maintained this community of Jews that they'd always be around. So historically, they became the Pope's Jews in um, 1501, about a, over a hundred years later, the Jews would be expelled from Provence and um, many of them again would take shelter in the same place in Comte à and then in another place, Avignon, in France. And they were, in these two places, protected again by the Pope. They were, of course, totally isolated from Jews. They didn't learn Tyra, so they quickly enough became very uh, assimilated all they heard were sermons that were authorized by the Pope. So they weren't formally, con- they, they weren't allowed to convert to Christianity, because that would kind of defeat the purpose, right? They were supposed to be the Pope's Jews, but they were the Pope's Jews who were effectively Christians, not by name. Um, today, if you go, anybody been to France, you've been to Avignon or these, these places? So um, you can actually go and visit their schools. it's a tourist attraction today. Um, the Pope's Jews themselves that were supposed to survive until the uh, second coming of Yoshka, um, are no longer around. Their last descendants, there was a New York, there was a Time Magazine, Time Magazine doesn't exist anymore, but there was a Time Magazine feature. I think you can look it up online. What's that? Oh, it still is? Okay, fine. So t- Time does, but Pope's Jews don't. Um, the last descendant was featured as an old man in, a, in an article, um, in a 1970 article that I think I found online. I think you could still find it online. And um, he was the last known descendant of the Pope's Jews. And um, whatever happened to him? Well, he married a non-Jewish woman. And descendant coming never happened uh, Right. Apparently not. Apparently not. And if you can appreciate the, the irony of history, today, Kali Yisrael thrives in our own land, on our own terms, and the Pope's shoes are a relic of history. A couple of figures from, this, from the uh, late 14th, early 15th century. I just mentioned this one earlier today, it came up in a different context. The Maharil was one of the um, Ashkenazi figures, post-Tosfor Ashkenazi figures, one of the later uh, Rishonim, his full name is Ryakov Yaakov Halevi bin Moshe Molin. He was a survivor of a massacre of the Austrian Jews in 1420, lest you think that it's comfortable for Jews in any part of the world, even Austria had, has, it, has its massacres. Um, he, his fame rests on a safer written by students based on his teachings, he was a major proponent of minhag. Minhag, Abusayinu, the minhag of our forefathers is, is what uh, helps us sustain Torah and is a major source for, um, for Ashkenazi tradition. He'll be often cited by the Ramah on the pages of the Shulchan Aruch. So as you, as you go down the line and you start becoming, increasing Talmud Echol you'll be making a lot of use of the Shulchan Aruch, in which case you'll be hearing a lot of references to the Maharil as a source. For example, he's our earliest source for... Oh, and this is I mentioned it yesterday, because I was when I talked by the Chidah, and Rav, um, Rav Steyer pointed out that the Chidah wrote the most of the Nusach of Tashlich that we do today, the earliest source for Tashlich is the Maharil. We don't find Tashlich as a phenomenon, um, you know, before, I mean, well, it may have been before, but he's the source that cites it. The, um, he's the source for kitnios Ashkenazi Jews and not eating kitnios on Pesach. Um, he's the earliest source <coughs> that we have for Lag <coughs> Boomer in terms of not getting hair, in terms of, yes, getting haircuts and not saying tachanu We don't have uh, an indication before then that that's what, Jew, that, that's what Ashkenazi Jews did. There's a minag that young men wait until they get married before wearing a talis, a talis gadol. The earliest source for that is the maharil. Um, He's also the source of an idea that um, when you have a son, the minag is to have a sandak. And if you have another son, you should have a different sandak, that there should only be one sandak per child per family. Sandak is the godfather. Uh, but it means the one who sits with the, it's a big, uh, oh. close, a big position and there's a skula that you have a, a big tzaddik, a big Tamil chacham, who's the tzaddik of your child so that has an influence on the child's development in any case, the idea of one sandak is traced back to the maharil um, he's also the source of having chala when we said in Erev Tafshilin, when when uh, when, let's say, if if, if Yantav Shani falls on Friday and you set up an Air er, 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 Tashilin, so um, that you would have the challah from the air er, Shilin at all three meals on Shabbos, and that you actually eat it at the third meal. That's, that's all traceable to the Maharil. Yeah. Uh, I, for Omer, uh, so he just. Came up with uh, he brought down the minhag, uh, kind of here, but it was like a, it was a holiday, ah not clear at all it's only around this time that we ever for the first time even hear about Lakba Omer there are those who question whether their're major source major source the question whether it's even the yard site of Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. Oh, I yeah not at all clear that anything was happening before around the 15th century. Uh, associated with like, but Omer per se in the Jewish world, and uh, anything to do with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in in uh, in Meiron. Um, the last thing about the Maril, he was a and apparently had memorable, beautiful melodies that he sang. They were legendary. Uh, he held that these two are also part of Minneg Mene- Israel. You should not change the melodies. And indeed, as late as the 1930s, picture this. The Maharil lives in the 1300s and 1400s, and as late as the 1930s, they were still singing his song in Germany. No. Apparently. The tunes of the Maharil, we have people writing and testifying to singing the tunes that were traced back to the Maharil, and then after that, apparently, they, all, they, all, they, they, they went to the gas chambers with the uh, victims of the Holocaust. We survive, but a piece of us uh, was was was, uh, was burned out of us in the process. Um, it's during the 15th century that one of the uh, rabbanim, Menachem of Mersburg, who's called the Milt Tzedek, he actually did away with a rabbinic institution called You Familiar with meun when a uh, daughter lacks a, when a young girl lacks a father. Um, her mother and her brothers can potentially arrange a marriage for her um, but it's not a fully binding marriage they don't have the authority over her and she doesn't, she doesn't have das before she's bas mitzvah so nobody has really authority to make it a real marriage and so when she comes of age the Talmud explains that you could, she could do what's called mi'un which is to nullify the marriage now that she has das, so it's during this period of the 15th century that the mi'un tzedek abolishes the practice of mi'un he says, instead of me, she can't just get up one day and just say that I, I nullify this marriage. Um, we treat it like a regular marriage, and she needs a full get. So you don't hear about Mion from this time on in history. Um, He's concerned, there were too many sveikos with yichus, and uh, in terms of a person's lineage, better to have a get in hand. And there's no doubt you got fully, certifi- certifiably divorced. Um, it's also during this century. If you notice, it's kind of a... There's a certain darkness about this time, and I'm about to talk about another great work to come from this century, uh, but it was written anonymously. We don't know who the author is. His name is, the, the book is called The Orchot Tzaddikim. It's one of the prominent works of Musser. Um, it was originally called The Sefer Midos, and it was written sometime in the 15th century. Uh, it follows, actually, a much earlier Musser book, Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Gavirol's Tikkun and Nefesh. Follows the pattern, but it draws on many of the early classics of Musser, the Rambam, the Rebidiona. Tikkun Amidos is a classic book. No question. I'm sure we have it here. I'll give you a little bit of a taste of what he teaches. In the, in, in there, he writes in the, in the... Anybody learn it here? You're learning it? Oh, i Oh, great. So, Orchos Tzedikim, The Ways of the Righteous. Oh, you know what is a modern-day wonderful book? The, oh, what's it called? Re- Baruch Chait put it out. You know, Rebaruch Chait wrote that wonderful <laughs> picture book on Shabbos, and biblical like Shabbos, you know what I'm talking about? Where he illustrates the bachos of Shabbos and the, and the abstract contract. It nice. No, it's one of these big cartoon books where there's an il- there, he brings uh, top-level illustrators to illustrate um, the, sometimes very hard to understand, uh, concepts having to do with Shabbat. And he took, and his next project, I think it was the one he did afterwards, um, was on Midos, and he follows the Orchos Tzaddikim. I think it's called the Midos Pirates or something like that. It's, it's, it's written theoretically for kids, but it's fantastic for adults because in a very compelling, engaging kind of manner, you're able to really trace the good Midos and how to pursue them. In any case, the Orchos Tzaddikim, we find he teaches, remember the good Midos that you lack as well as your bad Midos. Right, that's what you should do. But he, he says you should forget um, all the good things you've done and the injuries you've received. Meaning, he says he says you should focus on. I'm paraphrasing. Productive, pragmatic medos. Don't take credit for all the good stuff. That's not necessarily going to help you. But neither should you. Should you uh, keep track of the people who've wronged you, which is not. Uh, very, in human nature we usually keep track of that kind of stuff. He says that won't help you out in life. Um, <clears throat> elsewhere he talks about dealing with anger. He says when you feel angry what should you do? He gives, he gives several practical tips. He says stay quiet until you calm down. Try not to speak when you're angry. He says speak in a low tone. Do not under any circumstances raise your voice. Uh, take these as good, good prescient advice, especially in marriage and parenting. Um, he says, and never look at the object of your anger, the person you're angry at, in the face. It will not help you calm your anger. Um, in 2011, we lost the world, lost a great Neshama, Rebitzin Rebetz, Kanievsky, Rev Chaim's wife passed away and um, her bookmark the book was on her bed Or the bookmark was on page 199 in which it says the following the neshama despises the delights and foolish enjoyments of man all the stuff that people get very into the neshama hates it all it craves knowledge to serve Hashem with, uh, with reverence the neshama ponders what will be at the end when the body dies and decays and how will impurity return to its creator? That was the, uh, the page that it was on when Rev. Knievsky's neshama went back to her creator. Good words to live and die by. Yeah, the last person, the last uh, pers- gadol <coughs> uh, from this period that I'm going to mention, there are others as well. Rav Yisrael Yishalin of Nustat is the Truma Sedeshan. His dates are 1390 to 1460. He's another major Ashkenazi source, together with the Ma'arik. Um, some consider him the last Rishon of Austria. He's near the end of the period of the Rishonim. Um, some count him maybe among the earliest of Achronim. I would suggest maybe it's a little too early for that. We haven't yet come into the 16th century, in the Shulchan Aruch, but we're nearing the uh, transition. Some people say maybe the Spanish expulsion will be that transition. Let's talk about it. The, 19, the 1391 decree... Um, Produces a new class of Jewish people called, you know this, conversos, conversos who are new Christians. Well, that'll be a later time. The, the name is does not emerge until the actual expulsion. But by in 1391 already, the term converso, they converted, emerges. Now. To be a converso is fraught. Remember that they're the subject of the Inquisition. They certainly enjoy a special status. They get certain privileges. The Church likes them and wants to encourage them. Um, Some, for example, it seems pretty clear they financed the voyage of Christopher Columbus, some of these conversos. Uh, But of course, as we said, they are subject to persecution and massacre, uh, especially if they're accused of practicing secretly as Jews. You have a McCarthyist, kind of environment that starts taking over where, you know, everybody, all the conversos were certainly um, acquainted with one another. They, they, they were acquainted with uh, people in high places, and there was an ongoing paranoia. Are you secretly Jewish? And, all, and if, you, if you envied somebody's position or maybe you liked his wife, one easy accusation you could make was, he's still secretly practicing Judaism. You could destroy a person uh, with that accusation. Very effective. Um, many of these personalities would flee to places like Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and the North Africa. Right? We're going to find this again. They're going to do this all over. This is in the already the, the immediate aftermath. Uh, they're going to do that again as much as a century later. Many would die on the way. Many would be killed by bandits, and they had nobody to turn to. It's not like you call the International Jewish Committee to take care of refugees. There was nobody like that in the world. Uh, It's all the more, I mean, this is our history, you know, you were helpless as a Jew. Nobody to go to bat to you. When we see um, the first modern-day prominent Jewish personality to actually stick his neck out and help Klael Yisrael in an effective way, who am I thinking of, anybody know? The 19th century? Famous great figure, Sir Moshe Montefiore, right? It becomes, his figure is so striking because nobody ever did that, nobody ever could do that. It was such a, a revelation in history that Akhaz Baruch would bring such a figure to the Jews. You know what the Jews could have done in such dark times. What's that? They're they they're, they're related. They're brothers in line, anyway. but they're not they're not the same prominence. Yeah, I mean not the same role to play. Montefiore was there to help Klal Yisrael. Yeah. Um, Many of them die of hunger. Many of them, when they go to, their, to the new countries, the new countries weren't <laughs> equipped to take them in. Some of them died of the poor condition there. And some of them would ultimately be forced to return to Spain where they would face new sanctions because they fled. 1469. Isabella of Castile marries Ferdinand of Aragon. And this marriage unites most of the Iberian Peninsula under their rule, which is a fundamentalist Catholic rule. And it's one of the first times we can legitimately start using the term Spain. As I keep saying, you know, there are the provinces in Spain, not unified. With Isabella and Ferdinand, they finally get most of the, uh, that peninsula under their rule, under their thumb. And the earlier inquisitions that existed suddenly gets a new update. Um, they established a new tribunal in 1480. Um, they appoint a fanatical posi- a person, a famous historical figure, Tomas de Torquemada. I think as Mel Brooks once said uh, they tried, but they couldn't talk him out of it. Yeah. of something along those lines. Anyway, um, the, again, remember, the Inquisition's role was not to necessarily oppress Jews. The rest of the Spanish world did that. Um, their role was to ensure that Jewish and Muslim converts didn't lapse, didn't turn away from the Church. What's ironic, of course, is all of these people, Isabella, Ferdinand, Thomas de Tocumada, and most of their associates, most of the architects of the Inquisition, have at least some Jewish ancestry themselves. Christopher Columbus, the theory goes, might have had Jewish ancestry. No way of proving such things, but certainly plausible. The first what they call auto, auto de fe is in 1481 the next year. Um, what is an auto- defe? Burning at the stake. They, take, they, they capture six converso so-called heretics who they claim are rebelling against the church, and they publicly burn them. Uh, it's a, not a crucifixion exactly. That crucifixion is arguably a more horrific kind of death, but not by much to burn at the stake while, while you're fully conscious. Um, it will be the beginning. It'll, it's a harbinger over the next three hundred years for over two thousand auto da public celebrated burnings were all it was like a town sport. Everybody would come and witness. It's only abolished in eighteen thirty four. When you think about modern times. You know that's very modern. Spain, Spain was in the dark ages for for, for all the way into the into modernity. Um, I mean, it, it had experienced a long decline, the but they were out of the phase even even in, in the in the nineteenth century. Um, here's the situation: wives testify against their husbands. Children, um, children uh, bring aging parents before the Inquisition. Very socialist. Absolutely. Uh, they would find evidence against what they call crypto-Jews, converso-Jews, they, uh, this kind of, like, for example, if they, they claimed that they, we saw no chimney, no smoke coming from your chimney on the day of the Jewish Sabbath. Aha! Secretly practicing Judaism. No, we had sushi that day. Nothing. didn't matter. They found evidence, they claimed this is proof that they were secretly practicing Jews when they saw them purchasing vegetables before Pesach or if they bought meat from other converso butchers. Right, you couldn't, I mean, you know, there was no winning. Okay. Um, now, if you were captured by the Inquisition, you could make what they called tshuva. You could return to the church, but if you relapsed, the rules went, if somebody made tshuva and then was caught again, then they would get the auto de fe, they would, they would burn at the stake. We know, of, we know that tens of thousands of these people were detained, they were tried, they were tortured. They literally terrorized the Jewish world in Spain. Over 4,000 are murdered just, just in this particular uh, institution. Of course, who were the, the favorite targets of the church? The rich. Because the church, after they killed the, uh, their victims, they could confiscate the vast wealth of the, of the people. I'm going to end today, we're, we're going to tell the story of the expulsion tomorrow, but we'll, we'll, today we're going to talk about one of the great figures of history, Dan Yitztaka Barbanel, who was alive before, during, and after all of these events. His dates are 1450 to 1508. Yeah, he didn't live a long life, but what a life he led. Uh, see if you could be as, as productive. He was born in Lisbon in Portugal. He was from a great rabbinic family. His grandfather, for example, was Shmuel, who was an advisor to the king of Castile. Because the, the the non-Jewish kings recognized the greatness of the rabbis, the wisdom. Um, they actually this one of the families that historically traces their lineage back to David Melech. Mashiach may come from them. Um, his teachers included Rav Yitzchak Abu and the uh, Bar is often referred to. Knows everything. His sweeping knowledge of Torah, Tanakh, Chazal—he knew all of philosophy—and his wisdom was so impressive that, indeed, even in his generation, he attracted the attention of King Alfonso of Portugal. He started life in Portugal, and he's appointed the treasurer of Portugal. People sometimes call, call, sometimes call him the foreign minister. That's not correct. He was the he was the treasurer of uh, the, Portu- the the kingdom of Portugal. Um. He shares a lot in common with the great figure of Mordechai in the Megillah. Um, like Mordechai, he regrets, later on, he writes about regretting his political tenure. Not happy to be in politics, but sometimes you had no choice. Um, but even so, uh, his record in, in power is sort of like, uh, I, I associate him also with Shmuel and Nagib, he was a big tzaddik. And he used his power for chesed to help, to help his fellow Jews. There's one story, for example, where a group of Moroccan Jews had been sold into slavery, and he gave most of his own personal fortune away to ransom them. Uh, Alfonso dies. His son accuses the Barbanel uh, of of conspiring against him, and um, and he flees. And he goes to Toledo in the Castile in 1483, which is now under Isabel and Ferdinand and 1483 he started to recognize you know, the dates are getting closer to 1492 um, he left his whole fortune back in Portugal but now, are, are you with me? this is just one of the most impressive paragraphs in history so, so get this now he's destitute but now he's not encumbered by politics and so for the first time in years he shrugs his shoulders and goes back to what he loves doing he goes back to parshanut. He's a, he's one of the greatest commentators uh, on the Tanakh of all time, and listen to what he accomplishes in. And we know this; we have all the dates here. Ilan, you're, you know, we really do have accurate dates. He keeps all this, all the records very exactly. He writes his perush on Sefer Yoshua. Think about this: during these kinds of emotionally and physically turbulent times, with the Spanish Inquisition in the background and the expulsion just coming up, and they were counting down the days of the uh, Alhambra decree. So, with all this in the background, he writes his perush on Sefer Yoshua in 16 days, from the 10th to the 26th of Marcheshvan in the, year, in the Gregorian year 1484. Tosses off Yoshua. Uh, he, then in the, in, um, he then writes the same year um, Shoftim, his commentary on the book of Shoftim, in 25 days. He writes his Perush on Shmuel in two and a half months, larger book, uh, in the next year in 1485. One imagines that if he, would get, if he was given the luxury of time, which we, we seem to have too much time on our hands, uh, but some of our Gedolim didn't have enough. If he had more time, he could have produced many other great works. Uh, unfortunately, his political career was too successful, he was too talented. And he's tapped by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to serve as their treasure. He's recognized for his brilliance, and um, it's around this time that he finishes his for Shmuel that they say, we need you. And he becomes the treasurer of the joint kingdom of Aragon and Castile. Um, he is immensely successful on their behalf. He increases the treasury uh, uh, exponentially. And they're grateful for all the revenues. And it's during this time that he begs them, please, please, you've got to reverse the Alhambra degree. You need us Jews. It's not just me. You have a whole loyal, dedicated following in the Jews. You cannot, remember, it's it's convert, leave, or die. He says, you can't be serious on this he will start bribing them and all their associates. He spends much of his personal fortune that he's re-amassed now in the short period, uh, he spends it on bribes. At one point he throws himself at their feet. What a, what a display. But Agadol is uh, willing to do anything and help on behalf of Klai Yisrael. Remember our Tanim sailing off to Rome to, do, to, to appeal to the various powers that be. Um, in the end, uh, none of it is to have any avail. He's he, together with the rest of the Jews, will be expelled in 1492. And that's not the worst of it. He eventually settles in Venice. Now, the king in, per- in Portugal had actually kidnapped his grandson and had him baptized and raised as a Catholic. And the Barbanel writes about this as among the most bitter experiences of his life. He grieved about it till he died, and he said, it's my fault, I should never have been involved in politics. And it's highly ironic, because today you read, you, let's say you hear in a secular history course, he'll talk about the Barbonell, oh, great statesman, a man of great influence in, uh, in the political world, because in their eyes, that's, that's all that matters in life, and if a Jew made it there, then he, you know, that, that, that's, that's the ultimate accomplishment. But the Barbanel did not count this as one of his great accomplishments. He counted it as uh, the reason for it is the loss of his grandson. Um, among his other works, he wrote Yerushim on much of the Tanakh. He also wrote many, many works. He wrote a commentary on the Mournavukhim, one of the major works on the Mournavukhim and the Guide to the Perplexed. Um, he has a three. He has three works that are really three parts of the same work that he calls Migdal Yeshuos, and he wrote it to cons- to, um, to, to, to to offer some kind of comfort for his 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 generation. The subject was the Mashiach and the people needed to hear about Mashiach. When you're living in impossible uh, times, like the times of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the only thing you can, that will make you sane is the knowledge that we're gonna, that all this is going to end and we're going to come out on top. Um, the idea, of course, is he's going to revive his, the, gener- the, the spirits of his generation. In the third work, he has, just like the Rav uh, he has very strong criticism of Christianity. Um, he actually he does something that almost no other commentator, a Jewish commentator does. He actually cites the comments of the Christian commentators. That's how worldly and widely learned he was. He knew everything, and he used their own comments to refute them. Um, he He writes books on philosophy. He rejects a tendency among philosophers to read their ideas into psukim. Which is something we see today with secular Jews often reading their ideas, whatever they want to, so you can project it into a into a piece of the Talmud. I think about the conservative rabbi that, that proofs from the Talmud or he claims to prove from the Talmud that the rabbis would endorse uh, gay marriage. Right? And people who have who have a start with their end goal can get anywhere they want to. So Barbanel refutes refutes such a such a, a, a trend. Um, there was an example that people wanted to claim that Shemaim Marim Maim Aretz, and Tovavo represents and, and those are all elements in the beginning of time, in creation, that they represent the four elements of the world. And that's a philosophical idea, and Barbanel re- refutes that. Um, he's also one of the earlier sources in um, explaining the source of Gilgal Nefoshos, Nisho- not, the, not the first. In fact, the Ramban uh, more, more famously writes about Gilgal Nefoshos. Um, having uh, shown that the sources in in um, Eo and say for Eo, but the Barbenel says the concept of the nefashos, meaning reincarnation, is the basis is the foundation of our uh, of our tradition. You don't need explicit references in the Tanakh or in Chazal. He says he says you can't prove it in the text, and you don't need to either. Uh, the Barbenel will uh, we'll have other descendants, um, many of them until today, there's a, there's, a great, there, there's a Barbanel family, they take great pride in their family name, um, there's a Ladino proverb that says Yo basta mi nombre que es a Barbanel, which means it's enough that my name is a Barbanel that, that, that establishes my, uh, my uh, pedigree um, Tomorrow we'll talk about everything we'll be leading to, the actual expulsion that takes place in January of 1492, one of the nadirs of all of our history.